Breaking Down Barriers, part three, that the world may know. This whole month, we've been focusing on breaking down barriers that are, you know, local, but also not just local. And never having had the opportunity to pastor during a pandemic before, this is kind of new. And two questions have arisen over and over, and I've heard these through my involvement with the Stovall Christian Ministerial Association and through a number of other avenues, so they weren't just coming from into one, folks. First of all, there are the end times questions. Do you think that the pandemic is a sign that Jesus is just about to return? Is the pandemic one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Is this what we're in right now, the beginning of the end? Is the apocalypse upon us? Then there are the judgment of God questions. Hey, Graham, do you think that God is trying to get our nations or maybe even the whole world's attention? Is God judging us for our wicked, violent ways or for the way that we voted or the way that we didn't vote? Should we call everyone to repentance of sin so that God will remove this virus from us? And honestly, praying and repenting of sin is never a bad thing, right? But why wait for a global catastrophe? Repent before the kingdom of God is at hand. And, you know, unless that becomes a real distraction from the main thing, which we're going to get to in a minute. Now, I totally get what's behind these questions, right? Because of the types of churches that I know exist out there. Uh, people are asking these questions based on the way that they were raised, based on their worldview, um, based on the church that they grew up in. The worldview they were given, that they were presented, that they were left with, that they were left behind with. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, these are interesting questions. But as we're going to discover, and as you would guess, uh, these are not the most pertinent of the most or, or the most important questions. They are not usually helpful questions. The point for us today is to understand that these are not the kinds of questions that the first century Christians asked when they were faced with similar, very similar circumstances. And just my opinion, okay? I think that our fascination with these kinds of questions reveals, in some cases, a limited knowledge, certainly a limited understanding of history, of the sufferings that people in other parts of the world have had to navigate for generations, and that many people were navigating in this generation before the appearance of COVID-19, which makes me wonder. Perhaps the question that we should be asking is this one. Why? Why do North Americans, and I'm including myself, why do we all have such a low pain threshold? It's kind of embarrassing, really. I mean, it's me, too. And part of the answer to that question is that we are so blessed. We are so resourced. We're so used to it. We are so, we've been so protected. And, and, and those of you who have traveled around the world to different and difficult regions, you, you know this to be the case. You've seen it in action. We North Americans have very high expectations of how we expect or, or how we deserve to be treated. We don't want to be told no. We feel like we have the right to do pretty much whatever we want. I want to do what I want to do whenever and wherever and with whomever I want. And I also demand the right to not do things that we don't want to do. 
You see it in the news every single day around us. We have a low tolerance for discomfort. We have a low tolerance for anyone telling us what to do. It, we, we live in an it's-all-about-me-centered culture, a culture that's becoming increasingly more rights-driven than responsibility-driven. When individual rights take precedence over personal responsibility, perhaps the end is near. Perhaps an apocalypse is just over the horizon because you, you, you just can't. You, you can't create. You can't pass. You cannot enforce all the laws necessary to ensure peaceful coexistence in a culture where personal responsibility takes a backseat to personal freedom. It, it just can't be all about me and all about you all at the same time. Somebody has to give. Something has to give. Somebody has to surrender a bit of their personal freedom. Or chaos will ensue. And, and I know this too. The notion of surrendering any personal freedom strikes us as against the very things that our culture is built on. But we do it all the time. At least I hope you do. Every time you stop at a four-way stop and you let the person to your right go first. Every time you wait in line at a grocery store. We, we go out of our way to raise our children to say no to themselves in order to get along with other people. But when I and when you refuse to take responsibility for ourselves, what do we do? We force somebody else to take responsibility for our irresponsibility. And that can only go on for so long. And all of that, along with all of our varying worldviews and all of our varying theologies, the way that we were raised to see the world to interpret the world. All of that feeds our curiosity and fascination with interesting, with intriguing discussion topics that are, in the end, unhelpful. Those questions that are related to the suffering that many of us are experiencing. Or in most cases, most of our experiences anyways, it's not suffering, it's hassle. It's inconvenience that's been inflicted on us by the coronavirus. And that brings us to the point of today's message. And it's this. What questions should we be asking? When I say we, I'm talking about we, right? The big church, the big C church. Where should our focus be? What should we focus our energies on? And the interesting thing is this. The New Testament makes it crystal clear what kinds of questions that the early church asked when they were faced with problems that they couldn't solve, faced with a natural disaster that for whatever reason, God chose not to withhold. So here's a little context, okay? After Pontius Pilate gave in to the religious leaders in Jerusalem and ordered Jesus to be crucified, it was pretty much open season on Jesus' followers ever after. The religious leaders didn't drag anybody else in front of Pilate for execution. They just took it upon themselves. And their first victim, as you may know, was a man who had been chosen by the apostles to distribute food to widows. His name was, what? That's right, his name was Stephen. Stephen was officially the first Christian martyr. But as it turned out, Stephen, in addition to being able to serve widows food, he had some other pretty sweet skills also. He was a powerful communicator and a persuasive litigator for the faith. So the religious leaders in Jerusalem had him arrested. They gave him a partial trial about blasphemy. But during the trial, they made a crucial mistake to get their end across. They gave Stephen an opportunity to defend himself out loud and in front of a crowd. And it was a mistake, 
because his argument for the faith was so compelling that it just made them all mad. And so they, they, they dragged him not to Pilate. They dragged him just outside the city gates and they stoned him to death. Just a horrible way to die. In many instances, the victim didn't die immediately. They were left to, to bleed out alone as animals gathered around to be the first to feast on the carcass. When there were no negative repercussions from Pilate for when they stoned Stephen, the religious leaders like Green Light, right, started rounding up all the followers of this Nazarene sect, members of the way. That's what they called it then. Luke tells us this, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. They were no longer able to meet together safely. They could no longer meet together legally. And the result, what happened? So the Jesus movement ceased to be. Its leaders were all eventually rounded up and executed. No, not at all. Of course that's not what happened. This is what happened, just the opposite. Acts 8.4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The fact that they could no longer meet together in Jerusalem did not dampen any of their enthusiasm. It turns out that the persecution served as a catalyst to spread their faith to regions that had yet to hear of the message of Jesus. Now, as you know, if you grew up in church, the chief inquisitor, the chief prosecutor was a man named Saul of Tarsus. Thanks, Griffin, for telling us about him. We, we know him as the Apostle Paul. He was enthusiastic. He went from house to house in Jerusalem, grabbing men and women out of their homes to be tortured and imprisoned because they had embraced the way, this Nazarene sect or Nazarene cult. And when he ran out of Christians, well, they weren't called that yet, but when he ran out of Christians to arrest in the greater Jerusalem, Judea neighborhood, he got himself deputized to arrest Jesus' followers way up in Damascus and to bring them all the way back to Jerusalem for trial. This is just nuts. The trip from Jerusalem to Damascus, just get out your map, right? The trip from Jerusalem to Damascus, one way, would take him nearly two weeks. That's how intense he was about putting away, once and for all, wiping clean this Nazarene sect, the way, the followers of Jesus. But, as you know, on his way to putting the way out of business, he was intercepted by the living Jesus. And he immediately, he immediately abandoned his violent ways. And he joined the losing team that eventually lost their way to victory and shaped Western civilization. <coughs> and Paul, as you know, eventually went on to write a series of letters that shaped Christian theology for the next 2,000 plus years. So recap, here's the picture. Christians are scattered, smothered, and covered. They are despised and they are dispersed. But what questions are they asking? When they got together, what did they talk about? What was it that concerned them most about their predicament, their situation? What did they focus on in those days? And those are great questions. Luke continues the story, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. 
Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Verse 20. Some among them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch. Antioch is over 300 miles north, just under 500 kilometers north of Jerusalem. And they began to speak to Greeks also, not just Jews, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. 21. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Pause for just a moment. Wouldn't it be great if that was the church's story around the coronavirus? Wouldn't that be great? When those who've been scattered by the virus recognized that they could no longer gather as they had in the past, things had to change. And they looked for new opportunities to spread their faith in Jesus. I hope that's your story. I hope that's my story. And, and, and together, I hope that's our story. Anyway, back to their story. It turns out that, as many, uh, that, that so many non-Jews embraced Jesus as Savior in Antioch that the believers in Antioch sent a message to Jerusalem. Help! Hey! We need backup! Send us some help! So the church in Jerusalem, they, they found a guy, sent a guy named Barnabas to Antioch to help disciple people, to help teach them, all these new believers. And when he got there, boom, he had an impact. So many more people responded. He needed backup as well. And so he went and he recruited some extra help. <coughs> Luke says this, uh, 1125. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for, for Saul, 26. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The reason that there were so many people was because of the disruption and the persecution 500 kilometers south in Jerusalem. Here's the interesting and instructing thing for us. There is no indication that first century Jesus followers in Antioch or in Jerusalem tried to figure out how all of this disruption, all of this displacement, all of this persecution played into some sort of larger eschatological framework. They didn't interpret the, the, the persecution as a sign that God was unhappy with them. They just adjusted to the new normal. And they just kept going. They had their eyes on their mission. And God honored it. And interestingly enough, as you probably know, it was in Antioch. As a result of widespread persecution that the Jesus movement finally got its permanent name. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Then this story takes a really interesting twist. It's this twist that leads us to the opportunity that lies before us today. Here's what happened. Verse 27. During this time of disruption, this time of persecution, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, 28. One of them, named Agabus, uh, he stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. Now, the, the term famine, that's a term that we only really associate with ancient times. It's not something that comes up for us. Right? For, for us, it's just a word. It's, it's not something that strikes fear into us or dread. It's just what happens. But a famine in ancient times, that, that, that meant that perhaps an entire village, an entire town, in some cases an entire generation would starve to death. It was the worst news imaginable. There was no workaround. There's no way to get away from it. 
this guy, Agabus, said that a famine was coming and it's going to spread through the entire Roman Empire. It's not a localized famine. It's not just right here. You won't be able to just leave town and go buy bread down the road. It's going to spread throughout the entire region. Here's another little interesting treat. Luke, who's writing this letter several years later, after these events are over, he reminds his first century readers of the actual famine that he's referencing because many of them had lived through it. He goes, oh yeah, you, you remember this, right? Because this happened during the reign of Claudius. Claudius was the emperor right before Emperor Nero. Once again, these first century believers, they've just gotten this horrible news. Horrible news that's going to impact everybody they know, including themselves. They did not respond to this terrifying, devastating news with questions about what it meant, what it pointed to. They didn't ask, what does that portend? What about my future? Is this a warning? Is God judging the Roman Empire for her cruelty and immorality? And apparently they, did, they didn't ask these questions. They didn't say, is this, is this a sign that the end is near? They just didn't worry about those kinds of things. Or, or there's no indication or record that they did. What they did instead is they asked far more practical, applicable, helpful questions. After all, they're now Jesus followers. So they ask these questions in keeping with the teaching of Jesus. Practical, here and now questions. And author N.T. Wright, he, when commenting on this passage, he summarized these questions this way. When they got together and realized something dreadful was about to befall them, here are the questions that they asked. Number one, who will be at risk? Number two, how can we help? Number three, who should we send? Really clear. Now, this group in Antioch, they were well aware that the famine posed a threat to their families and their livelihoods. But they paused. These are brand new believers. They paused to consider the implications for Jesus followers in other areas that would be harder hit specifically the plight of the believers in Jerusalem. Because when this famine swept the empire, Jesus' followers in Judea would be particularly hard hit <coughs> because they were already considered outlaws. Most of them couldn't work. They'd been expelled from the temple. They were poor. They were vulnerable. So the believers in Antioch saw this horrible interruption as an opportunity to resource the less resourced Jesus follows all the way back down south in Jerusalem. And instead of sitting around talking about, what does this mean? What do you think about that? They looked around and they got busy. Luke tells us this, Acts eleven twenty nine. 29. The disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. 30, this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So what began was this long process. It's, it's so fascinating to read about. This long process where Barnabas and Saul began taking up a collection for Christians living in Judea, specifically in Jerusalem. And these guys were the gift bearers to make sure that these brothers and sisters that the people in Antioch had never ever met would be resourced during a difficult time that would impact everybody. 
But, and here's the part that's really easy to miss, and I don't want you to miss this. It's really impossible for us to appreciate. Jerusalem is like 500 kilometers away. And to try and give you some perspective on this, if, if I was to leave from Toronto and, and to go to New Zealand or to South Africa and back, it would take me way less time than it would take for someone back then to travel one way from Jerusalem to Antioch. If you look at a map, these two, these two cities in ancient times are like an eternity apart. And culturally speaking, they were, they were half a world apart as well. These were Gentiles in Antioch. Gentiles who thought, like most Gentiles do, that the Jews were kind of a strange people, okay? They could have easily excused themselves from any sort of responsibility to help these other people. They were never going to even meet them. They were never going to bump up against them. They were probably never even going to ever go and visit that part of the world. Besides, this was going to be an empire-wide famine. They would be affected as well. They would need to take care of their own. There was something else at play here as well. And it's commonplace for us now. It's commonplace today. It's even considered virtuous now. But it was actually unheard of in ancient times. It did not exist. They created it. Generosity towards someone who could not or would not be generous in return. In those days, that was not considered a virtue. It was considered weak. Why would anyone help someone who could not help them later in return? In ancient times, this is just ridiculous, right? This was a net loss because there could be no return. This kind of generosity wasn't considered commendable. It was just considered foolishness. And to some, it still is today. Your hopes of, of getting something. You, you, you did favors in hopes of receiving a return. Besides, they didn't even know these people. And they weren't their people, right? The people who received wouldn't even know their names. In ancient times, honestly, there was no category for this. Until Jesus. Until people began to understand the implications of the gospel. And when presented with the message of Jesus... These Gentiles had come to accept the fact that they had a sin debt that they could not pay. And that God, through Jesus, paid that debt. They had been given peace with, and not the fickle gods that they had grown up with in their childhood. They had been given peace with the living God, the creator of all things. And now they were to do for others what God in Christ had done so generously for them. And as Jesus' followers, they were now accountable to the law of Christ. So when the opportunity arose for them to give, with no opportunity to receive, they gave willingly, they gave generously, and never before, this is amazing, never before in recorded history had a multicultural group, as you'd find in Antioch, felt familial, kinship, responsibility for a group of people with whom they had nothing in common and had never met. And where did this politically, culturally incorrect behavior come from? It came from their recognition that God so loved the world that he gave. It came from their acceptance of the fact that by that kind of generosity, all people would know that they were disciples of Jesus, that the world may know. They gave because that's what love required of them. And this is cool. 
These are our people. Right? They got the ball rolling. They were the first ones to get that flywheel flying. They introduced a new kind of generosity. And eventually, it would have a name. It would be referred to as Caritas. A brand new category. Never before seen category of generosity. Caritas was giving to relieve the physical or the financial distress of others without expecting anything in return. That brand of generosity would eventually brand Christianity. It would become the hallmark of the church. So, taking a page from our first century brothers and sisters, our primary responsibility is not to figure out why the pandemic happened or to react to the various theories of its origin. Someone can do that or to figure out how it fits into the overall sovereign plan of God. That doesn't really help anybody, and we are called to help. At best, it just leaves us debating irritably amongst ourselves. And if the Apostle Paul was right, and I think that he was, the pandemic is simply another global expression of a broken world, awaiting its redemption and its redeemer. In other words, this, nothing new. But the question is, what should we do? What should we do? And this year, our February focus outflow, breaking down barriers, is a big answer to that question. It's our answer to that question. Now, if you're new, you need to know a little bit more about us at Into One. We are driven in earnest pursuit of Jesus. We are motivated, we are inspired by Jesus' high priestly prayer where he shared his longing with his heavenly Father. And at Into One, we seek to be the answer to the prayer of Jesus. John 17, 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. 23. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected into one, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. We combine our resources to do corporately what we would do individually all year long. Give, serve, love in Jesus' name. We invest in this mission so that the world may know that God loves them and Jesus died for them. It's our opportunity to be intentionally involved through our partners locally and internationally. It's our opportunity to remind our community that everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. We call it outflow because it's based on the overflow of our hearts, because of what God has done for us. That's why we're involved in this mission, because God so loved the world that he gave. Love gives. Another way I could say this would be, I want you to be rich. And that language comes from the Apostle Paul and not a prosperity gospel preacher telling you that God wants you to be rich. It's based on what Paul said to his buddy Timothy in a first century letter. First Timothy chapter 6, starting at verse 17. Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world. And if you have more than you need, by international standards, you're rich. 18. Command those who are rich in this present world to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Now here's the thing. I think most of us want to make a difference, but we don't always know how. Here's the way. 
And it's a simple way. This is the year of our 10th anniversary. And over the course of our 10 years, I did some quick math. Now remember, I was like a fine arts student and a biblical studies student, okay? So I did some quick math. The treasurer had nothing to do with this math. And you have served, not including me, just you, you have served over 14,000 hours in all of the different ways that you have served. And collectively, you have given almost $1 million that we in turn have invested into Stovall Ministry and into our international partners, Derek and Bonnie Burnett, Kevin and Carol Lim, and Lisa Brown, Dan and Jenica Van Essen. We do that through the Global Advance Fund and through the Jaffrey Project as part of our home denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance. We have invested in new ventures, in church plants in our district. We've invested into the Jesus Network, into the Salvation Army, into the Markham Stovall Crisis Pregnancy Center. We have also been partners with and invested in time, treasure, and talent into Restore Canada. Some of you might, might have been involved in the past years raising money and awareness and walking for Restore Canada in the coldest night of the year walk. That would have been happening yesterday. This year, the Stovall Christian Ministerial Association and, and Into One will be investing in our own walk to ensure that a much larger percentage of the donations raised will actually make it back to Restore and then back into the lives of our Stobel neighbors who are in need. Mark it on your calendars. And we will tell you about it again later. May 15th, 2021. Do good. Be rich. It's been the spirit of Into One from the very beginning to partner with and not compete with the fabulous nonprofit organizations in our community and around the world. We work with these partners all year long. We highlight them at different points of the year, but we partner with them throughout the year. Some of the things that we are, through partnership, supporting are food insecurity, mental health care, and support, compassionate services, emergency relief and response, education. English language training, microloans, early childhood support, spiritual guidance, prison chaplaincy, just to name a few things. So we are looking at some questions. What would make a big difference for you? And then, what would help you make a big difference? And we're talking to our partners in this. That's the kind of thinking and acting that we want to be involved in. And for this type of ministry, we don't usually set some kind of specific financial goal, right? Just way too many variables in that. But we're going to lay out a goal for you this time. The goal is 100% participation. So what if? What if we each participate? What would that look like? You choose an amount. Anything you want. We are simply asking you to engage with this and then see what the Spirit of God might prompt you with. 100% engagement. That's the huge, lofty goal. We're asking that 100% of those of you who can, to give. Just add a note to the memo line of your check or on the envelope or in the online giving portals. Just write outflow, all right? We'll know what that means. We've never tried anything like this before. But this year, the need is greater than ever. This can be life-changing for people on both sides of the transaction. 
It was the first century church that understood and embraced this novel idea that devotion to God is best demonstrated and authenticated through our love for others. It's not what we say. That extravagant generosity towards others is the appropriate response to God's extravagant generosity towards all of us. That shift, that approach, it had a ripple effect throughout the entire Roman Empire. Who would have seen that? And I'm hoping that our generosity in Jesus' name has the same effect on our community and perhaps even around the world. So I would encourage you today to give generously. You choose any amount. Let's show our world that our devotion, that our faith is more than just sermons and songs and that our church is absolutely not closed. Father, thank you for the way that you have worked. Ah, the way that you work in me. Please don't stop. And for my friends, the same thing as well. Keep working in them, transforming them, bringing them to life. There are all kinds of things that we wrestle with in this season right now. And it's tumultuous. So, in that tumult, would you bring calm and peace now? That we would be able to see that we have an ability to make a difference in the lives of others. Free us up to do that, God. Any amount. Any amount. 100% that we would engage each of us regardless of our age or stage, 100% engagement, any amount, what could we do? What would it look like if we decided that we believe that you've made such a difference in our lives that we wanted to overflow, outflow from us locally and internationally? Thank you for the way that you've been at work. And please, God, don't stop. Let this even just be the beginning of how you move in and through us. Speak to us today that you might speak through us later. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.